And so in the in the 16th and 17th century, it was still an open question whether a gentleman should learn drawing because it is a mechanical art. And so those mechanical artists, painters who did drawing every day, claimed that drawing was actually the equivalent of imposing a design on brute matter with your mind. The idea of designer today is very much that idea of imposing on matter, an intellectual conception. And many artisans today say, I talk about design, but I don't really do it. It emerges out of the material itself. It emerges out of my interaction with the material. And that kind of emergent knowledge that is really the, the skill of craftspeople, that they can, they're skilled enough that they can control that emergent knowledge, they can harness the material transformations that are going on in the moment. I think that it's not given its due. Pamela H. Smith is a professor of history at Columbia University and founding director of the Center for Science and Society, where she leads the Making and Knowing Research Project. Born and raised in a small, isolated California town, influenced by what she describes as a consistent, persistent and gentle math teacher father and an artistic and creative mother, serendipity led her to discover her love of the history of science in Wollongong University in Australia. And it was that experience that led her to commit her life to being a historian of science. In part one of this two-parter, we discuss Pamela's upbringing and her journey into the history of science. We also discuss the evolution of science, human progress through the centuries, creativity, curiosity, and the acceleration of knowledge and the influence of social organization as our economies and trade networks developed. We also discuss the growth of cities and the emergence of the artisan class and the changing roles they played. In part two, we discuss how Pamela established the Making and Knowing Research Project, its purpose, and we discuss the origins of our most recent launch, the Digital Critical Edition. We also cover her views of education, failure, persistence, and the need to create a more evolved and sustainable economic model. I hope you enjoy, and if you do, share this extensive exploration and mind-expanding journey through the history of science with Pamela H. Smith. Pamela, hi, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you so much, glad to be here. It's great to be here in Colombia on a, on a sunny February, early February day. First of all, I'd like to thank Beth Comstock for the recommendation to interview you. It's been a while, but we're finally sitting down together. So it's great to be here at Columbia. So thank you very much, Beth. And again, thank you, Pamela. So let's get going. Before we explore our guest's life, and in your case, education and research, we'd like to understand more about your childhood and where you grew up. Now, from doing a bit of research on you, you grew up in an isolated small town in the Sierra Nevada to what I believe was a math teacher father and a busy homemaking mother who had a love of archaeology. That's all. You, you've done your homework well. <laughs> Good. So talk to me about that experience and what was their parental support and guidance in the experience mm. of growing up in such a small, isolated community like and the impact that it had on your, your early journey? Mm. It's an unusual place. It's um, physically very beautiful and my parents were very interested in hiking backpacking in nature in environmentalism and that was kind of our guiding star our our guiding principles were leave no trace in the wilderness try to be adventurous in our hiking and backpacking and that was really formative to grow up in that place and to have so much freedom and to be encouraged to have that kind of 
you know, boldness in the face of what is a relatively extreme environment. And was it just you or you have siblings? I had an older sister and a younger brother. Mm -hmm. And I think about my mom out with no neighbors around with three small children under the age of six. Must have been quite something. Mm. I think it wasn't easy. But presumably with transport to get around. Oh, with a car. Yeah. 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 Uh From what I've read and heard you talk about before, they were quite affected by their generation where they grew up, that they were not hippies, but they had an enlightened view of the world and how to bring up children. Yeah, they did not have any set plans for us. They always told us they just wanted us to be happy, that we had to find our own way, um, which we've all done. And I think that one of the most important things, they really felt that everyone should really care about the environment. And I often joke that we grew up with no religion except kind of a Calvinist environmentalism because it was very frugal and that was definitely a virtue, minimalism and frugality and caring for the surroundings. We could probably do with more of that in today's, today's society. That frugality, but what about the um, the role of in that environment where that sounds idyllic and full of the freedom to be on the outdoors? What was play like, and the and the sense of safety you had in that environment? Mm. Well, we were just free to run around. I mean, it's empty, it's desert, and we lived on many hundreds of acres that were just unbuilt on, and so. We kids, us three and the neighbors, ran all over the hills, and our parents had no idea. Presumably, they had no idea what we were up to. And sometimes we were up to relatively dangerous things that I would not want my children, for example, to have done when they were young. But I'm glad if they did it, you know, and I didn't know about it. So in terms of influence between your father, who's obviously a math teacher, and your mother, how did that dual influence, what mm. was their dual influence and which one affected you more? Mm-hmm. Or could you maybe just sort of uh, mm. deconstruct the impact that the the two of them had? That's a hard one in some ways because my father was the consistent, persistent and very gentle one and really made sure that everything was working okay in the household and everything else. And my mother was the kind of free-spirited, it's a kind of a cliche, but emotional and artistic. I mean, she and her two sisters were all had real artistic streaks. In fact, one of her sisters is an artist. So she really encouraged our creativity, did all kinds of art projects with us. And at the time, I thought it was absolutely normal that everybody grew up this way. But it's only since then I realized that it was, you know, it was something that she chose intentionally to do. So I think that they were both very, very influential on all three of us, and, but in extremely different ways. Um, so you weren't just sat down in front of the television? And told oh, we to... didn't even have a television. Yeah, really? I mean, first of all, there wasn't, you, television couldn't actually reach over, before cable, right? Couldn't reach over the mountains. And then we never had cable. I mean, 
ever. So your communication to the outside world was, was what, radio and just the oh, local in- newspaper? Incredible, yeah. It was, when I think about how isolated it was, the biggest newspaper that probably was the LA Times, but there was no way to get it delivered in 350 miles away. So there was a local newspaper, I think once a week, which we looked at, but it had no national news. And then there was one radio station, I mean, one radio station that was a a country western station. And it it's funny when I, I said we never listened to it. I told my sister that recently. And she said, yes, we did. We we listened to it in order to find out whether we could wear pants to school that day. <laughs> and then I remembered, yes, indeed, the girls were required to wear dresses unless it was snowing, and then we could wear pants. But it was announced on the radio. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, change, you know, that was days. the big news, right? I mean, there was no, there was probably national news on that radio station, although very little. So we got our news from Time Magazine. It is interesting to think about the environment in which children are growing up today, mm. bombarded by devices, or by media and content from the earliest of ages, mm. having an iPad stuffed in front of them. Yeah. You just wonder. I mean, I know there's lots of psychological studies being done at the moment that, and, and warnings against bringing up children surrounding them with, with that type of mm-hmm. content and media. And certainly a lot of the people leading companies in Silicon Valley are are probably the more enlightened ones <laughs> and know of the dangers are restricting the use of te- access yeah. to technology yeah. to their children. But it's interesting that, that you grew up with such a little influence. And yeah. you, you we had wonder, books. There was a public library. But that's, that's yeah, it. But that's, it's, yeah, it's, it's reading and learning. And mm-hmm. I suppose I'm... Asking the question in relation to you've ended up in a, a world and life of education where clearly you've got the ability to have a very powerful attention span to go deep into the subjects that you go. Mm-hmm. And you wonder just what this generation, what impact that's going to have mm-hmm. on our ability to learn and retain mm-hmm. and develop as as a society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's really of great concern. I mean, I have grandchildren, and my my kids don't allow the their kids to be on screens yet, or they didn't until one of them was three years old, I guess. But still, I mean, you see that kind of incredible focus mm-hmm. that my grandson gets in front of a screen. I mean, in front of his little videos, training in all kinds of etiquette and and, and moral and ethical behavior. But we had, I guess, I, I recognize that kind of deep absorption in how I read books. I mean, I did not hear anybody around me talking to me. But still, that kind of addiction, or I don't know, addiction's probably maybe too strong, I don't know, but but that kind of incredible absorption in the screen. Mm-hmm. I don't know, is it worrying? I don't know. I oh, know, it's yeah. too early to tell, probably take a generation. So, what was school like for the young Pamela? Mm. Well, I went to school in the 60s and early 70s in California. California, at that point, before um, Proposition 13 destroyed the tax base for our schools, was one of the best school systems in the nation. We were in a very rural school, but we had great teachers. The, the principal, I mean, the principals of that school, like most education at that point, was to really encourage creativity and to not 
really worry so much about testing, or at least as that's as I remember it. I mean, it was very limited what we could do there, but some of the really wonderful things that I was able to do. I was in the band. I played clarinet. I was, I think I learned more about writing by being the editor of the school newspaper than in any course I took. So, you know, that kind of object-based learning, being able to take art classes, many of things that have now been cut in the, in the destruction of local taxes. So it was a particular kind of education, which was, I think, wonderful and had incredible advantages and was incredibly fun. I mean, I love school. But in other ways, to prepare for an academic career, it was like there were lots of things I was missing from that education. Because, for example, we never had a history course in any of my Well, I mean, I guess some of the things that we did could be seen as part of history or learning about history. Like we had a teacher who was very concerned to teach us about the Second World War, but never a formal history class. But was that just the local education system or was that just general uh, U.S. curriculum at the time? I would say that it was probably... California curriculum. It's hard to believe, though. I mean, for example, our band teacher was our history. Well, we had a course called history, but it our band teacher taught it. And what we learned, I the thing I remember most is looking at charts of shipments of U.S. coal to Japan. And I, it's hard to imagine in what context that was. But that's my strongest sense mm-hmm. of history. And now I'm you know, a historian. So I had a lot to catch up on when I went to college. And then when I actually started teaching, I had a lot to catch up on as well. That worldview that your parents embraced, how did it impact on you and your development? Well, I think that my father was a great builder. He he actually worked with an architect. He learned how to um, build houses. And that architect was very influenced by Frank Lloyd Wright. And so we lived in a house that was like the kind of popular house design that Frank Lloyd Wright um, had put forward, Usonian houses. Oh, right. Okay. It w- meant that we had a great room and then tiny, tiny little bedrooms with no privacy whatsoever because that was the idea of the house, the the kind of working and middle-class house that Frank Lloyd Wright designed to encourage the family to congregate. And so that was really... For, I mean, that too was probably formative. I wasn't aware of that being a Frank Lloyd Wright design until a couple decades ago when I went and stayed in one in Oberlin in Ohio. And then my father was also always very interested in Buckminster Fuller, partly because the idea of less is beautiful, less is more, but also because Buckminster Fuller was a great advocate of geodesic domes, and my father always wanted to build a geodesic dome, and in fact, we... Sorry, uh, (laughs) I've got to stop you there. What is a geodesic dome? (laughs) Well, it's a dome that is made just with triangular pieces, so you could build structure with just a cement base and then a geodesic dome over the top. So they were fairly low cost and low labor to build 
and he he started it, but then when I was just finishing my last year of high school, my parents, who had always wanted to go to another country to live for a couple of years, took us out of school, and we went to Australia. <laughs> and, and so that had many implications, but, but one of them was the geodesic dome never got finished. <laughs> All right. Okay. So I'd, I'd heard uh, or read that you did end up in... In, in a place called Wollongong in yes. Australia. Yes, um, good, good, Wollongong. Yeah, yeah, Wollongong. So how did that impact on your education and mm-hmm. your development? Because that must have been quite a, a significant upheaval. It was. We would never do that today with our kids because what would it mean for them going to college, right? And I was just, I had already been visiting colleges and would have gone to the University of California, but my father, who had always wanted to travel and live in another place, and we had always been, or we had often been on the verge of going away for a year, but then it never worked out. And then in um, 1975, I guess, he found out about Australia hiring teachers and for two years, and so he decided to go. And we went. And that meant that I arrived in Wollongong, a steel town with coal and steel town. A bit different to the Sierra Nevada. It, very different to the Sierra Nevada. Not a big city, but full of immigrants, especially for after the Second World War. An interesting place in retrospect. It was very, it was so different from what we knew. But... I basically had finished high school a semester early, and I didn't really know what to do with myself. And so I wanted to just take some classes at the local university, the University of Wollongong. And so I did, and then I just ended up finishing my BA there. Wow. (laughs) So that was... With your parents coming back to the U.S.? Yes, my parents came back to the U.S. after two years, as they had planned. I stayed on for my BA for three years and then a year of an honors thesis. And then I stayed for another year working, and then I worked my way back across the South Pacific in taking about five months to do it. And that's almost the last time I was in Australia, many, many years ago. But the, the, what I wanted to say about doing that was that going to that little university, the University of Wollongong, in which there, too, I didn't really have much exposure to history classes because that had been the branch, the engineering branch of the University of New South Wales until 1974, I think, right before I started going there. And so it was very science heavy, which was fine with me at the time because I was going to be a science major. I had been, that's how I had been tracked in high school, you know, Sputnik era, we were tracked in high school for science and math and I loved it I loved chemistry and that's how I started off in at the University of Wollongong but then interestingly and unusually there was a history of science program at the University of Wollongong probably because it was this engineering branch there were very few history of science programs anywhere in the world at that point and I took, I guess, probably in my second year, I took a course in the history of science and the history of Greek science, and my mind was just blown by it. I just had never even thought of science having a history. So, and now I'm a historian of science, and yeah. I run a Center for Science and Society. It's not the sort of thing that, that <laughs> any person would 
generally think about. So it's it's not surprising that it, it blew your mind. Mm-hmm. It's never mentioned. I never had that at school. I mean, we had history, and history went back no further than sort of medieval time and maybe around 11th century and William the Orange and and then beyond that, all the way through British history, American history, all the way through to the Cultural Revolution and Countercultural Revolution in Vietnam, what we call modern studies. But to go down a specific branch mm. like science and history is obviously beyond any standard school curriculum. So it's not surprising yeah. that people don't think yeah. about it. But I suppose most of us assume that science has always existed. It's not something you think about as having a beginning. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. Although the way that we think about the natural sciences today is unlike at any other time in human history. And that is because we devote an enormous amount of public funding to science. It has become part really of our identity as modern people and certainly part of national identities. I mean, up till the Second World War, really, there was not much public funding of science. And with the Manhattan Project, with the defense spending during the war, and then with the building of the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, there has never been a time when so much has been invested in a form of knowledge making as today. And not only that, that makes it an unprecedented kind of approach to knowledge making about nature now, but also that the that there is a single understanding of how nature works that's actually pretty unified across the globe. And that's fascinating that we can have such a unified view. I mean, obviously, there are differences among scientists, but they're all basically working mm-hmm. on the same sets of but there are, but theories. But to call out, there's a growing band of flat earthers out there that deny a lot of science. So maybe... Maybe what we're seeing around us at the moment with the dismantling of democracy and the, sort of the polarization of politics and the, uh, the crazy direction that we seem to be going in in many uh, mm-hmm. countries around the world, the, that a reversal from where, where we've been. I would say that it's inevitable that if you have a such a powerful form of knowledge making that is so allied to defense and industry that you are going to have dissenters. And really that started with the environmental movement as well. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing to have that unified sense of how nature works, but it is unprecedented in human history. So you think from the... When you talk about today, you're talking about the last half century yes, or yeah. century since right, maybe I, World War One. Probably more like just before World War Two. Yeah, and the so the there the, was no science, National Science Foundation until the fifties. So, so talking about the Manhattan Project, and I know that creativity, it's can go swing both ways, both for the positive benefit of society and have a detrimental effect. But something like the Manhattan Project was clearly driven by Oppenheimer. And I believe you know a fair bit about the size of the team that was behind it. It was in the pursuit of building something that would 
accelerate the end of the war, it was believed to, to have done. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting that the science and the creativity and the invention and the progress we were making at, at such an accelerated rate over that time led Oppenheimer, I think he said, quoting from the Bhagavad Gita, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. So could you maybe just talk about that in relation to the acceleration of scientific learning and knowledge through the sort of the the latter half of last century and 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 maybe just reflect on the universality that great accelerations have come from things like weaponry and even back down to, into the the bronze age and the development of instruments that were used for purposes of war yeah i i mean you can look at this history of science in different ways. The way that when I was an undergraduate, it was taught was really looking at theories of matter and theories of the cosmos. So we went back to Babylonian cosmological figuring of the movement of the heavens, for example. Um, But I've come to see, look at science in a slightly different way now in my own research, and that's really looking back at human engagement in nature. And that's because I have always, in one way or another, worked on craftspeople and their relationship to the um, natural world, their relationship especially to the um, scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries. And so if you look at science in that way, if you think about the way in which humans have always engaged in nature, they've always manipulated natural materials, for example, to make bronze. Bronze is an artificial substance. It's copper and tin. It doesn't um, occur in a native state. So that the first making of bronze, which seems to have happened in many places at once, so it's not as though there's one great genius discoverer. How could that have happened at that stage when there was low communication between societies and cultures? Because it seems as though it happens in places where there are deposits of copper and access to tin and a trading network, a large enough population base, a particular configuration of ruling. So all of these factors that we think come from individual humans are very much influenced by everything that's going on around them, um, both environmental in the sense of where are they located, what kinds of deposits are near them, and then in terms of social organization. And I think that that's something that's often forgotten in the history of science or in intellectual history in general, or even in political history, your, you know, your story of kings and wars and individuals um, involved in political history. We often tell it in a very individual-centered way. So getting back to your question of what causes these accelerations of technology or of invention, creativity, if you want to call it that. Or science. Or science, yeah. yeah. If you think about that invention of bronze, that emergence, you could call it an emergence out of these multiple factors, the emergence of bronze making, and then the ways in which it it was used. Of course, it was used for weapons. 
it was an acceleration in that sense. It was used for ornamentation and for representation of ruling as well, but it was um, certainly useful for weapons. And that's one way in which human beings have always engaged with nature. They have always theorized in some way or another about nature. And it's not necessarily a story of good progress. Mm -hmm. It's a story of human beings engaging, forgetting that knowledge that can also happen, and then and building on it at other times. And it's used for very human ends, for good or for ill. You mentioned Buckminster Fuller earlier, and I think he said one of his great quotes was, humanity is acquiring all the right technology for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> and, it, and it does... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's an well, element of truth in that. Isn't oh, it? definitely. I mean, the thing is, we want to people who some people see technology technological change as an entirely good thing. It's all about progress. Some people see it as an entirely bad thing, and it's neither. It's a human thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, there are there are ways in which technology is used for terrible purposes, but of course, there's also many examples of things like medical technology, mm-hmm. which is incredible. So you've you talked about that great acceleration in the sciences in the 16th and 17th century. And you mentioned it's not an individual. When I asked about how these accelerations and how the, these inventions can happen in parallel at different parts of the world, there does seem to be a sort of a social temporal element that's driven by power of community and the sharing of ideas. What happened at that particular time that created the conditions for the rapid change that happened between, let's say, the 14th and 15th, the 16th, 17th centuries that made science move forward in leaps and bounds? Well, there are so many factors I could talk about, but I'll just draw out a couple of them. First of all, in that period, the world was becoming more interconnected. The globe was, that was really the first global age, if you want to call it that. And there were long-distance trading companies that actually had organized financial instruments that meant that merchants were no longer just traveling over small areas, but rather long-distance trading was going on. There was a real desire in different parts of the world to really push this trading, to really bring the desirable things to Europe or to other parts of the trading networks. And that was a real stimulus in in all sorts of directions. So that was very important in this period. Then there were new technologies, especially ships. I mean, there were new ships built that were long-distance shipping across the open sea, the use of compasses and so on. And those industries, like shipbuilding, those problems of technology, shipbuilding and compasses and so on, gunpowder even, were central in the kind of competition that went on between emerging nations, you could Mm -hmm. call them, centralizing governments in Europe. And that very much influenced the search for natural explanation, the new science. 
the first societies, scientific societies, were founded in 1660s. Um, 1660, the Royal Society in London. 1666, the Académie de, of Royal de, in Paris. And those were really the culmination of a desire on the part of people concerned about the utility of the country, the power of the country, the sense that there were things that would be individually and nationally beneficial through investigating nature, and especially through going out into unknown places Mm -hmm. and bringing back new or different things. So, so science, this new science, this new sense that if human beings would be encouraged and funded to engage with nature, to actually produce things that would be beneficial to nations, so that, you know, nationalism, imperialism even, and science all really grew up in Europe together. And so they're very much intertwined. And that competition that you see between nations about science that you see very clearly beginning in the 17th and through the 18th and then really becoming very strong in the 19th and 20th centuries, that's something that really grew out of this period. So you have to look at it all as a as it's not just about knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's also about what that knowledge represented and how that knowledge was intertwined with imperialism, with, with things like building hierarchies about who could have this knowledge and who mm-hmm. couldn't, or who was capable of, think, of engaging in scientific activity and who wasn't. And you, you get at the same time then, of course, I mean, at exactly the same time, ideas put forward by anthropologists, new social scientists about the um, development of humans from primitive to civilized. Mm. And that's it's a new social scientific theory. As you were talking, it made me wonder, how did curiosity manifest itself? Because this clearly, this thirst and desire is driven by multiple factors, but it, there must be curiosity to discover, whether it be new lands, the curiosity to discover and overcome what was deemed as unknown and unfathomable at the time drove people to a quest for knowledge that maybe didn't exist before. So do you think that curiosity existed in previous centuries and generations, or is curiosity a manifestation as humanity advances as a species? And maybe I'd need to I ask an anthropologist I don't think humanity actually advances as a species, but depends what you mean by that. But No, because I mean, the Greeks, yeah. I mean, I can't say that. I mean, I answered my own question. I mean, the Greeks yeah. and the Romans were probably, and the Egyptians were probably just as curious as us. Well, it's interesting that you say that because in the 13th and 14th century in Europe, curiosity was actually a bad word mm-hmm. because curiosity meant that you paid too much attention, you took too much care on things that weren't important, you took too much care on the things of the world, for example, rather than the things of the spiritual world. Yeah, so witchery and wizardry, and therefore burn at the stake. Well, I would, I mean, you'd have to disaggregate all of yeah, those things, of but... but it was not 
seen as a good thing, which did not at all mean that there weren't incredible technological inventions being made all the time in the Middle Ages. I mean, if you think about all the different kinds of mills being made, Mm -hmm. for example, mining machines, all kinds of stuff. So curiosity is a hard word because it's so general and it can encompass so much. So it's a difficult word word to pin down, but there's no question that curiosity the attention to the things of this world in the 13th and 14th century was seen as negative because, of course, your eyes should be on the next world. So what changed in the 16th and 17th centuries to allow people to focus their attention on things of this world? To begin to use curiosity in a positive way. So I would say that the most important thing that changed was a, a new group of people forming in cities, and these were citizens of those city republics, more or less. The, Europe was becoming more populated. More people were concentrated in cities, beginning in the Italian peninsula. You begin to have people there who don't identify with the agrarian culture that really saw three professions. Either you ruled or you prayed, you were part of the clergy, or you labored, you were a serf, basically, more or less. They didn't identify because that's not what they did. They were citizens of a um, city republic or this kind of aggregation of people who were beginning to free themselves from landed rulers, either by paying a tax or by fighting them off. And they looked around for models of governance and models really of ethical behavior, and they looked back to the Greeks and Romans, and they looked at the writers of antiquity on governance, like Aristotle, like Cicero, and they found their interesting different models and of both how to organize society, how to be an ethical person in what they called a pagan universe, right? Mm. The Romans, the Greeks and the Romans (laughs) to to the Europeans in the 13th and 14th century were pagans. And so that model was then worked over, really, in the period from the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, and that's when you begin to see a, a, an attempt to reconcile the concerns of, say, a busy merchant in a city republic who is responsible for governance in some way in the city republic with his duties and his desires about the next world. Mm-hmm. So, so it's really that moment, I would say, that in which curiosity about this world becomes something that can be reconciled with a still great concern about next the next mm. world. But at that time, there was the emergence of a class of people, I believe, calling themselves artisans. Yes. And could you maybe just expand on that and the uh, and the power structures that were driving the, sort of the, the evolution from artisans to artists and the impact that had on science. Mm-hmm. A very important part of these cities was the increasing number of artisans, that is, people who made all of the things that were needed for life in the city. There were usually guilds, trade associations of these people, And in many cities, such as Florence, they became very numerous and, in fact, gained 
social status and even became part of the governing bodies. And that was very significant because it meant that the kind of work they did, their handwork, which had always been looked down upon, in almost every culture, handwork was looked down upon in relation to mind work. And that was certainly the case with the Greeks and the Romans, who these city citizens were looking back to. The Greeks and Romans saw this as a very powerful form of knowledge, but also something that really disabled a person for real participation within governance and within the kind of highest elites of a society. But in the 12th, 13th centuries, in the Italian city republics, these people actually became a part of the governing classes, and the kind of work they did became valorized through that and became something that was still seen as disabling in some ways, but had a higher status. Now, it wasn't just because they became part of the governing class, but also because because what they had to offer was so powerful, right? They could make weapons, they could build fortifications, and that was necessary for the kind of social and political organization, the so- social and political developments that were happening then, meaning that you began to have real competition between power centers. Let's just take, for example, in the um, 16th, 17th century, you can see it happening in the Kingdom of France. Mm -hmm. You can see that the King of France is gaining more and more power. And he is really taking over many of the, the taxes and the privileges of local lords. And so that's that in that competition among all of the little almost chiefdoms or warlords mm-hmm. in Europe, you really needed people who could make fortifications, people who could pour cannon and make weapons. And so for that kind of the brute force of weaponry, as well as the really important representation of power through all kinds of artworks, all kinds of festivals and all of the kinds of manifestations of power that you needed to really demonstrate power in that period or in any period, artisans were needed. And so they really began to compete with each other. They began to really try to differentiate themselves. And some began to call themselves fine artists and try to prove to the to their patrons, to the nobles to the elite city elite that they were different from your run-of-the-mill house painter so essentially it was the startup culture of the yeah. of that generation yes i would i think that's a yeah. apt analogy yeah the, yeah the creative class yeah yeah, yeah. that's very interesting so and began to see themselves as creative yeah. i mean uh-huh. in exactly the same way that they really began to see themselves as creative geniuses of the same level of a someone who you know wrote fiction mm-hmm. or wrote poetry they were creators in the same way that poesis people who dealt in poesis were also creators and that's a very significant because those are very different mm-hmm. social and intellectual levels yeah. so would you say that these were mecha- mechanical art 
artisans or artists or well certainly the they were called mechanical artists or mechanical artisans they they practiced the mechanical arts as opposed to the liberal arts now the liberal arts is such a well-known phrase in the united states but almost 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 no one knows what it means do you know what it means (laughs) i I wonder where to start it means the arts that are suitable to a free man Uh homo liber And that means that the arts suitable for a free man are things like authorship, writing, even though it's a manual art, is okay, although in Rome you really should have a scribe, a scribe who was a slave, interestingly enough, right? I mean, that's that's the thing about Greece and Rome is that one reason that artisans were so looked down upon is because they were, in fact, slaves. They were the doers and the thinkers were the... Yes, yes. There was a real difference between mind and hand, partly because hand was enslaved. So it's interesting to think about all of the ways in which the liberal arts, which we are so familiar with today, were really an object of contention, the boundaries between the mechanical and liberal arts. For example, Aristotle had a conversation, a written letter conversation, about whether a young boy should be taught to draw or not. And so in the 16th and 17th century, it was still an open question whether a gentleman should learn drawing because it is a mechanical art. Mm. And so those mechanical artists, painters who did drawing every day, claimed that drawing was actually the equivalent of imposing a design on brute matter with your mind. The idea of Mm. designer today is very much that idea of imposing on matter an intellectual conception. And many artisans today say, you know, I talk about design, but I don't really do it. It emerges out of the material itself. Mm. It emerges out of my interaction with the material. And that kind of emergent knowledge that is really the, the skill of craftspeople that they can, they're skilled enough that they can control that emergent knowledge. They can harness the material transformations that are going on in the moment. I think that it's, it's not given its due, that kind of knowledge, because we're so convinced, especially in the academy, that it's an intellectual conception that's imposed that's the important act. Mm-hmm. I came up with another interview about writing. And, and how the words continually feed back to you and the, and, the, uh, and the page itself. And it's not something that is a writer believes is just the transference from mind to hand to paper, but it is this constant relationship that is, is developed over time. Plus it, just, it also raises the question, broader question about, you know, what is creativity and where our ideas come from mm-hmm. and where they emerge and what influences us. Mm-hmm. And, and after all, we're all connected. We're all just atoms and, you know, mm-hmm. you know it's the fluidity of mm-hmm. where thought emerges mm-hmm. from or the impetus to create something. Mm-hmm. Well, it's anything that happens is so complex. You know, reality is like a total chaos, which we try to draw out meaning. And, and rationalize. Yeah, and rationalize. And as a historian, that is what we're trying to figure out, is really what are causal factors in the past? And, and I always say that history is the study of complexity, that we are scientists of complexity um, because we have to 
really examine deeply causal relationships and try to understand what causes are most important. So we look at the chaos of reality in the past or the chaos of reality in the present. I'm not saying it's different. And we try to find patterns in it, but also try, just as scientists, natural scientists do, but we also try to then write about it in order to um, give a sense of that chaos, but tame it just enough Mm -hmm. that it can make sense to us. And it's that kind of balance of trying to look at the chaos and process it and um, put it into some sort of order. And that, too, is, just to go back to your writing example, it's about this process. Mm-hmm. And and we have to, I, I tell this to my students a lot, we have to think in terms of process and not in terms of products. So when you ask probably in your interviews, who influenced you, Right. And so we think it's a person, or we tell the history of science from this person, Copernicus, Kepler, Newton, etc. We go from person to person, often male. But knowledge and reality doesn't really happen like that. I think we have to pay attention much more to process rather than product. Okay, that's the end of part one. Come back tomorrow for part two. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.